Alright, so this morning we're going to continue our study in 1 Corinthians and we will finish up today chapter 8, which we started last week. So if you got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and we will be in verses 7 through 13. Um, I would say that I'm excited about this morning's lesson, but then I'm excited about every lesson I ever teach, so that don't really really make any difference. So, But I do think, I did learn something this week that uh, I really, I guess, you know, in the Bible when you see something and it's like, you know, it's, uh, once you see it, it's so obvious. It's always been staring you in the face and it's like, well, how did I not see that? So I don't know if I'm just dumb uh, or what, but anyway, I did see something this week I'd really never seen before. And uh, so I'm excited about that today. Um, the title of our lesson is The Principle of Love, and then in parentheses I put for other Christians, and I'll explain that um, as, we, as we move through here uh, in just a little bit. Now, we saw last week um, in, in uh, the, our study of the first seven or eight verses that the Christians in Corinth had certain questions about just life questions, right? And they had written a letter to Paul, and they had asked him to answer some of those questions. In chapter 7, it was questions about marriage and celibacy. Uh, here in chapter 8, it's questions about food offered to idols, okay? Now, as we said last week, in the Greek and Roman culture, almost everything you ate, had either been offered to some god or sacrificed to some god or, or was being eaten in celebration of some god, as a Christian, you really couldn't avoid it, okay? Um, so the question became, should I eat this food or not? You know, food has been taken to the temple, it's been sacrificed to a demon or to a, to a false god, then it's taken to the market and sold. You go down to Publix, can y'all hear me Okay. You go down to Publix, you know, to buy, and there's those lamb chops, and they're on sale, right? And there's a sign that says, you just sacrificed yesterday to Aphrodite, right? And then you over here, and they're on sale, right? <laughs> I mean, so do you buy them? Do you eat them? Is that okay? Is it not okay? I mean, for them, that was a big deal. And again, as we mentioned last week, they had no scripture that told them what to do. So this is what we would call a gray area. There's nothing in the Bible that says it's right, and there's nothing in the Bible that says it's wrong. You have to decide for yourself. And we said last week that this has always been true. It was true 2,000 years ago, and it's always been true in every lifetime, in every society, in every culture, in every age. There's always going to be questions come up that we have to make decisions on. We talked last week about... Uh, you know, when uh, should women wear pants or makeup? There was a time in the church where that was a big deal. You know, it was a big controversy over that, and Christians debated that back and forth. Should we go to movies or dances? Should we smoke cigarettes or cigars? Should we fish or play ball or shop on Sunday, drink beer, wine, coffee, get tattoos? There's nothing, there's no specific thing in the Bible that says, and by the way, don't come up after the service and say, in the Old Testament, it says don't get tattoos. It also says in the Old Testament, don't eat shrimp. So you ain't going to be going to the... If you're not going to get a tattoo, you're not going to be going to Saint Yard on Friday night either. So just, you can't, you can't throw out the baby. You know, you've got to take it all in one. So don't, don't do that. Um, so it's like somebody, I said one Sunday, 
There's nothing specific that says we can't fish on Sunday. And somebody came up and said, well, the Bible says, you know, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Well, the Sabbath is Saturday, so you can't go there either. So if you want to debate any of that, I'll, I'll talk to you about it. But again, there's nothing specific that says don't do those things. Now, don't, please don't misinterpret what I'm saying. There are plenty of things in the Bible that the Bible is very specific about that says that is wrong and that is sinful. In fact, the Bible even gives us lists of these things. They're not gray areas at all. We, we covered one of these in 1 Corinthians 6, if you'll remember. Paul says in verses 9 and 10, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You see, the, Paul, the fact is, if you go on and read that scripture, the rest of it, Paul says you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been made holy. See, Paul understands that if you've really been saved, you've been saved out of sin, right? If you've been really been saved, you've been cleaned. You don't get drunk anymore. You don't commit adultery anymore. You don't do those things anymore. You run from those things. So he looks at somebody and says, don't deceive yourself. If you say you walked down an aisle five years ago or ten years ago and, and time has gone by and you're still getting drunk and you're still committing adultery and you're still a homosexual, he said, don't deceive yourself. You're not saved. You're not going to heaven. Because Christians have been saved out of those things. Paul understands that. So he gives us lists throughout the Bible that says those things are just inherently wrong. Don't do those things. Okay, so that's not what we're talking about. But not everything is covered in the Bible. As I said, in our lifetime and culture, just as in every lifetime and culture, there are going to be things we call gray areas that we just don't have specific commands on. So, how does a Christian decide what is right and what is wrong? Now, unfortunately, when we come to situations like this, people tend to go to one of two extremes, okay? And, and I always say a lot of Christians are like pendulums, right? We, we swing too far one way and then we realize it and we try to get back in the middle and we go too far the other, Trying to find that middle is so hard sometimes to get right on the line. Um, so people tend to go toward the extremes. One of the extremes is people will just make a list of rules. And we would call this what? Legalism, right? And don't kid yourself. There are people that absolutely love this type of Christianity. They are much more comfortable when someone will just put together a list of things that are right and wrong, and then they conform to that list. A lot of people love that. They love that kind of... There's churches in this county that are built on this very thing, right? They're, but here's what I want you to understand. These are people who have never learned to walk in the Spirit. They've never learned to grow in the Spirit. They've never learned how to, how to live in the Spirit. In fact, they don't even know what any of that even means. If you've talked to them about a spirit-filled life or spirit-controlled life, they got no idea what any of that means. They live their lives by a bunch of lists. Do this, don't do that. Do that, don't do this. That, to them, that's what spirituality means. I remember once online when I was looking at this, I read a statement. 
and somebody just was so tired of it, and they, they said something like this, church leaders should just get together and form a list of sinful activities so the average Christian could know what is sin and what is not, and we could just follow the list, right? Because, by the way, that would be easy, wouldn't it? If every time we had a decision, we just check a list. Is it on the list? Do this or don't do that. Now, there's a lot of problems with that, though. Number one, you would never get everybody to agree on what's on the list. I mean, that's, you would never get church leaders. You couldn't even take two churches probably in the county and get them to agree on what the list should be. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is it sets up a horrible standard of spirituality. You see, spiritual people would just be the ones who followed the list, right? In other words, no matter, it didn't matter the circumstances that were involved. Um, spiritual people, have you followed the list? Yeah, you're spiritual. If you don't follow the list, you're, you're not spiritual. And basically, legalism would become our spiritual standard. But you see, that's exactly what legalists do. They don't use principles to guide them in living the Christian life. They just use lists. Where to go, what to wear, how to dress, um, what to eat, what to drink, what to say, what to not say. It's all lists. They just make a list for it. Should you wear a bathing suit, not bathing suit, make a list. There's a rule for that. Should you get a tattoo or not? There's a rule for that. Should we drink wine, beer, uh, coffee? There's a rule for that. They just make up rules. Right? Like I said, they're kind of like the Old Testament Jews in the fact that, you know, they always felt if a hundred laws are good, a thousand must be better. Right? If a thousand laws are good, ten thousand. They just keep making up rules and lists to control. every. There's no guidelines. There's no list. There's no living in the Spirit. And as I said, people love that because it's easy. And here's the thing. They convince themselves they're spiritual because they do or don't do things on the list. See, they think they're more spiritual than other people because they do or don't do what's on the list. And see, that's legalism. But can I... And by the way, the very best example of this is given in the Bible in a parable that we're all familiar with, and that's in Luke 18, 10 through 13. This is where the Pharisee and the tax collector go into the temple. And the Pharisee stands before God, and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like that man over there, or those people over there. I don't extort money from people. I don't steal. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer, right? I don't do those things. Oh, yeah, by the way, God, I do fast twice a week. I do tithe of everything. Everybody see what he's... His spirituality is all based on what I don't do and what I do. It's got nothing to do with the inside. In the Bible, go read that parable. Jesus said that man who followed the list, walked out of that temple, and the word that the Bible uses, unjustified, which means if he don't change, he's going to hell. That's what that means. He's not justified in the sight of God. Following a list does nothing for you spiritually. See, legalism is all about the outside, all about a person's actions. It doesn't do anything inside the heart. Is that, is that what it means to be a, a spiritual person, to not do certain things? Listen, I, don't, I can take you down the street. I can introduce you to a community of people. And this community of people, they don't smoke, they don't drink, they don't cuss, they don't go with women that do. They don't, they don't do anything even remotely questionable. Okay, But can I tell you, people in a cemetery have no spiritual life whatsoever. 
right? You see, refraining from doing things is not spirituality. Just following a list is not spirituality. Walking in the Spirit, that's spirituality. And walking in the Spirit, sometimes it means that we come to things and we have to make decisions based on the Spirit's guidance, not necessarily what somebody has made up a, a list about. Now, on the other hand, one extreme is legalism. People say, well, you know, this is all this gray area. Let's just make a bunch of rules about it. On the other hand is the, is the people that say, we don't need no rules, right? We, I'll, I'll call these libertarians. I don't really have any other word for them. So I'll call this libertarianism as opposed to legalism. These are people who come to these gray areas and says, you know what, I'm free in Christ. I can do anything. If it's not forbidden by the Bible, I can do anything I want. I've been saved. I walk down an aisle. I, it's all by grace. It doesn't really matter what I do. You see, their only consideration that they take into account when deciding on a gray area is their own freedom. They don't really care about you. They don't care what you think. They don't care how it affects you. I'm free to do anything I want to do. Their motto is, if the Bible doesn't forbid it, I'm free to do it. Okay. Now, is that true? Well, according to Paul, who's going to address this very question today in chapter 8, that's not true at all. Paul is going to tell us is there is one great principle that limits our freedom. And that principle is love. Love always sets limits on what you can or cannot do. So here's the principle in a nutshell. And we introduced this last week. When you are deciding on a gray area, something that is not specifically forbidden by the Bible or something that's not specifically allowed by the Bible, when you are deciding on a gray area, you must consider how it will affect another Christian. Okay? And whatever would be loving, the most loving thing to do, in, in other words, would be most in that other person's benefit, that's what you should do. Okay? And as I said last week, don't miss what I just said. When deciding on a gray area, the principle is not how does it affect me. The principle is how does it affect you? How does it affect another brother or sister in Christ? That's the principle of love. Now let me read real quickly. This is the first four verses from last week where Paul introduces this subject. And we covered this last week. And if you weren't here, um, I'd, introduce, I'd encourage you to get uh, caught up on the podcast Paul says this in verse 1, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs, puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. So, let's, let's review real quickly. There were Christians in Corinth who were very mature. Okay? They had been saved for a long time. They had grown in maturity. And they said, you know what, Paul? We know that idols are absolutely nothing. There's a great, if, you, if you're taking notes, there's a great passage in Isaiah 44 where God describes an idol. And, and, he's, and he's almost, you can hear God almost laughing at, at people. He says, they go and they cut down a tree... And out of part of the tree, they carve an idol. And out of the other tree, out of the rest of the same tree, they make a fire and cook the food that they offer to the idol. And you can just almost hear God saying, 
Do you know how stupid that is? Out of one tree, you make a, out of one part of the tree, you make a god, and the other part of the tree, you make a fire and burn the wood. He just says that's it's ludicrous. It's, that's in Isaiah 44. And these guys said, you know what? That's exactly right. Idols are nothing. Absolutely nothing. They're just made out of wood. There's nothing there. And we know that food can't defile us. It doesn't matter what you put in your body. It can't defile you spiritually. Can it defile you physically? Sure. Make you fat and raise your cholesterol and all these other things. But it can't do anything to you spiritually. And they basically say everybody knows that. Now, what Paul says is their knowledge is right, but their heart is wrong. Okay? These Christians who thought they knew it all either didn't know or had forgotten that knowledge is always meant to be used in the service of love. So Paul's entire point in those first six verses is the power and the necessity of love. And in order to drive that home we saw last week, Paul uses the example of our relationship with God himself. Paul doesn't say if you know a bunch of information about God, then you are known by him. Paul says what? If you love God, then you're known by Him. See, knowing about God, just having knowledge about Him, you could, you could memorize the whole Bible, and that doesn't put you in a relationship with God. You can know everything there is to know about Him, and that doesn't make you known by Him. The Bible says if you love God, if love is there, that's what creates that relationship. Now, why did Paul bring that up? Well, one of the reasons Paul brought it up is he wants to drive home the fact to you and I that the same principle that applies with us and God, that we need love to have a relationship, is, should also be the same principle we have with our brothers and sisters in Christ. The title of our lesson last week is, it's not about being right. When it comes to you and I and we have a relationship, it's not about knowledge. It's not about being right. It's not having the right theology. What makes a real relationship is love. That's what binds us together. That's what unites us. And Paul wants us to see that today. So let's see how Paul explains this in the rest of chapter 8. Now, real quickly, remember, mature Christians have said, idols aren't real, food doesn't mean anything, so let's just go eat. Just, just go to Publix, buy, that, buy them lamb chops and have a feast. Because them idols, that don't mean anything, right? And Paul says, you know what, guys? You are exactly right. And that's what he said last week. We know idol has no real existence. There is no God but one. Let's just go eat up. Now, watch what Paul says in verse 7. And here, here's where we'll start the rest of our lesson today. Paul says this in verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Now, he goes on in verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat, and we're not any better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Now, let me quickly illustrate this passage, all right? Because there's some stuff in here that's a little bit hard to understand. What does it mean that somebody's conscious is weak? What does it mean that someone's conscience is defiled? What does this stuff mean? So let me, let me illustrate this with a little story. Let's say that in first century Corinth there are two men. We'll call one of them Demetrius and we'll call the other Antonius. And both of them were raised 
uh, in idolatry. Both of them were raised up. Their mom and daddy took them to the, down to the temple of Apollo every week. I mean, when the doors are open, they were there, right? And they participated in this idol sacrifice. They, they, they went to dinners in honors of God. Everything they did, they, there was this connection between food and these idols. They, they grew up in that. It was absolutely ingrained in them. And Demetrius, he hasn't been saved very long. He's only been saved a few months and he has just he shuns everything to do with his former or his old way of life. He doesn't go to festivals or, or dinners that celebrate false gods. He won't he goes down to the marketplace to buy meat and he he makes sure and asks, has this meat been sacrificed? If it's not labeled, he will ask, has this meat been sacrificed to idols? And if it has, he won't buy it. Okay, he won't have anything to do with that old way of life. He completely shuns it and walks away from it. Now, keep in mind, in his mind, he knows that idols are nothing. He has the knowledge in his head. He believes that there is only one God. He believes that. He knows it in his mind. But he's not yet able to let go of a lifetime of belief. See, that takes time. I, I put a picture of a Cuban flag up there to remind me. I've got a friend in Miami... Uh, his name is Orestes Narat. He was born and raised in Cuba, and he's 62 years old. And I've spent a lot of time with him. He works for the same company that I do, and I've worked, spent a lot of time with him over the years. And he, he told me as a child growing up in Cuba, they would have bomb drills. So he grew up during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and, and he was about 8 or 9 or 10 years old. And they would have bomb drills. And as children, they were told the Americans are coming to kill you. He, that was just drilled into him. In fact, he told me he would have nightmares. He would wake up at night in nightmares that the Americans were invading, they were going to kill him, they were going to kill his family. This was just ingrained in him. By the way, was it true? You know, probably not, right? I mean, I, you know, it, it's probably never going to happen. But he was just ingrained. That it didn't matter. It, it, to him, it was real, right? And so he grew up and... They, he's a real, very super smart guy, and they sent him to the University of Moscow to be educated. And while he was there, he met his wife, Hannah. And Hannah was from Poland, which was also communist, and they had sent her to the University of Moscow. And she was a little more free-thinking than Arrestus was, and she convinced him to defect. And so one day they were going on some kind of, I don't remember where they were going, it was some kind of university outing, and they were in Spain, and they, walked, they had to get off the plane... And he walked, they walked in the airport, out the airport, and went to the uh, consulate office and defected, okay? And they, they got out. But here's the thing. He would not come to America. He was scared to death of Americans. Americans were evil. Americans were bad, right? They had, that had been ingrained in him. So he, he, he went to uh, Canada, and he lived in Canada for five years. He wouldn't come to USA. Even though he's from Cuba and there was a big Cuban... Uh, you know, community in Miami, he wouldn't come because he, he just thought Americans are bad. So over time, it took about five years, he began to realize, he began to get all that out of his system, and eventually he moved to Cuba, and he's been living in, in Miami for years and years now. But here's the thing. You don't just walk out of an airport, and all of a sudden Americans are great, do you? doesn't work that way. Even though all his knowledge was wrong, to him, it's still real. 
right? It takes time to move away from that, to, to grow in your comprehension. Well, the same thing is true for Demetrius. He grew up in all of that, right? It was all real to him. Then one day he gets saved, right? And in his head he knows there's only one God. But he don't just immediately lose all the stuff that was ingrained in him for years and years and years. It takes time to get out of that. It takes time to grow into that comprehension. Now, Antonius, he's different. He's been saved now for several years. He knows, man, those idols, that's nothing. They're just pieces of wood, pieces of metal. So uh, Antonius will occasionally even attend a family or a business dinner at a local temple. He don't, I mean, to him, it's nothing. He has no problem going to the market and, and eating meat from the market. You know, because again, he's, he's moved beyond all that. He knows that, is, that means absolutely nothing. He understands, by the way, correctly that an idol has no power to corrupt food. His theology is, is dead on. His knowledge is right. So one day, Demetrius, who's the, who's the guy that's the younger guy, still, still learning, he comes across Antonius, and he's eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. And of course, Antonius is horrified. Right? He's, I mean, Demetrius is horrified. He's like, man, how can you, how can you do that? that? That meat was offered to idols. It's like you're, it's like you're worshiping a, a, a false god. And so Antonius says to uh, Demetrius, here, man, this, this is nothing. You eat some of this. Idols are nothing. You know that in your head. Go ahead and, go ahead and eat this meat. And Demetrius is like, man, I can't, I can't do that. You know, this, that stuff's been offered to an idol. So Antonius, to encourage him actually cuts off a piece and, and gives it to him. And, and Demetrius thinks in his mind, well, you know, Antonius has been saved longer than I have. He, he really has more knowledge than I have. If he says it's okay, well, maybe it's okay. And so he takes that, eat, that meat and he, and he eats it. This is basically the same situation described by Paul in verse 10. Look at what verse, Paul says in verse 10. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? Now, let's stop and let's kind of analyze this for a second. What's the real problem here? What did Antonius do by offering the meat to Demetrius? What did he do that was so wrong? Okay, well, here's what he's done. Antonius has encouraged another believer to ignore their conscience, which is already weak. And listen, teaching someone or learning to ignore your conscience is an incredibly dangerous thing to do. Okay? You see, Antonius thinks, well, I got all this head knowledge. I know an idol's nothing. So well, he actually encourages another believer to ignore their conscience. And that is something you should never, ever do. Do. Now, let me explain why. In fact, go back to verse... Let's read 7.11 again. It says this. Paul says, And their conscience being weak. So that younger believer has a weak conscience. He says again, Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak? There it is again, this idea of a weak conscience. Paul goes on to say, And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Now, we got to understand what he's talking about here. we got to ask a couple questions. First of all, what is the conscience, and why is it such a big deal to 
a Christian. So, let's talk about the conscience for just a second. As we all probably know, the conscience is a God-given moral compass or a moral guide that every person is born with. Okay? Romans 2.1 tells us this. He's talking about they, and he's talking about people who have no knowledge of God. He says, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts either accuse them or excuse them. So there's something in each one of us, even when we don't know God, that we come to a situation and we think, boy, if I do that, there's something about that that accuses us and says, that's not right. You shouldn't do that. Or sometimes you can, you can say, I'm going to do that, and there's nothing there. And you think, well, that's okay. Everybody got a conscience here? Okay. We, we all are born with this innate moral guide, right? However, as unbelievers, our conscience does not work like it's supposed to. It, it's broken. Uh, the Bible tells us this in Titus 1.15. It says, to the pure, all things are pure. But to them that are defiled and unbelieving... Nothing is pure, even their mind and their conscience is defiled. So even though every unbeliever has a conscience, the Bible tells us that our conscience is actually broken. It doesn't work right, okay? Now, we've all... By the way, what, what do we do as unbelievers? When our conscience... We're unbelievers, our conscience is broken, and sometimes we come to the point and we say, we know this is wrong, what do we do anyway? We just break, we ignore our conscience. Our conscience says, don't lie. But even as a child, we, we automatically start what? We just lie. We ignore our conscience, and we ignore our conscience. And by the way, if you ignore your conscience enough, right, after a while, it won't even talk to you anymore. In fact, the Bible says you can go so far. Not everybody's like this, but some men go so far that their conscience is seared like a hot iron. In other words, it just completely shuts off. It doesn't work at all. And that, that, all, that begins from childhood by us ignoring our... The Bible says don't, don't lie, we lie. Don't steal, we steal. Don't do this, we do it. We ignore our conscience. There's something wrong. So by the time we come to Christ, we've got, all this, we've got this period of in our life where we've just constantly ignored our conscience. Right? We've just been doing it our whole life, just ignoring our conscience, ignoring our conscience... And then we come to Christ. And when we come to Christ, our consciences need to be retrained, so to speak, reformed, refashioned. In other words, as we grow and mature in Christ and His Word, the Holy Spirit brings our conscience in line with our knowledge. Okay? So we got all this knowledge, right? We're, we're learning about Christ, but our conscience for all these years has been broken. So what God wants to do is get our conscience in line with the Word. That's exactly how we all should be. Should we not? The Word says it's wrong. Our conscience should say that's wrong. The Word says it's right. Our conscience should say. We want our conscience and, and, and the Word in, in line with one another. This is exactly, by the way, what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. Hebrews 5.14 says, Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. So not, not only are we to have the head knowledge of what's right and wrong, we should have a heart knowledge, a conscience of what's right and, and wrong. So that's what the conscience plays. It's actually a guide, even for Christians. In fact, Paul, listen to this. Paul lists a clear conscience as one of the purposes of his teaching the Word of God. 
In 1 Timothy 1.5, he says this, The purpose of my instruction is three things, he says, that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and genuine faith. So Paul says, one of the reasons I'm giving you the word is so you can have a clear conscience, so you'll know what's right and wrong, and you can follow what's right and wrong. Everybody with me? Okay, now, Scripture teaches us that as a Christian, we are to follow our conscience. Acts 24, 16, Paul says, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. See, when we follow our conscience, doing so, when, we're, when we do what the... When the Holy Spirit's working in our life and He's bringing our conscience in line with, our, with the Word and our head knowledge, when we follow our conscience, it tells us we're following the Word. When we follow the Word, we're following our conscience because there the Holy Spirit's using that. Everybody with me? Okay? But you see, this maturation process of our conscience takes time. Sometimes we can get the head knowledge pretty quick, but our changing our conscience takes a little bit of time. It takes a little bit of maturing. It doesn't happen overnight. You see, this is what Paul refers to when he states that somebody's conscience is weak. It's weak like a child. It's weak like a little baby because it's growing. It's maturing. And as it's in that process of growing and maturing, it's weak because it's like a little baby. It needs people to help it, to support it, to edify it, to build it up, not tear it down. Right? That's what he means by a weak conscience. It's still in the process of, of getting in line with, their, with the head knowledge. So with all that said, do you see how big a deal it is if one Christian leads another Christian to violate their conscience? Because what you're doing is you're teaching them to ignore one of the very things the Holy Spirit is using to guide them. Let me say that again. That's why you don't violate a person's conscience. You, because you're teaching them to ignore one of the very things that the Holy Spirit is using to, to guide. Listen, as you're, a, as you're a young Christian, by the way, I've been saved a long time. I don't know everything there is to know in the Bible, right? I don't know everything, and I'm always going to come to a gray area. And a lot of times in the gray area, a lot of times the first thing I listen to is my what? My conscience. What does my conscience say about this? Because I, maybe I don't know exactly what the Word says, or maybe the Word doesn't speak to it exactly. I'm trying to follow my conscience, and then you come along and say, don't worry about that conscience thing. Don't worry about that. No. No, we shouldn't ever do that. Listen to uh, Paul, Paul says in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 11 through 12. And read that verse again. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Now watch this. Paul says, thus, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sinned against Christ. Teaching someone to violate their conscience is a sin against that brother, and in the end, Paul says, you sinned against Christ himself when you, when you did that. You see, biblically, both believers... Now, listen to this very carefully. Both Antonius and Demetrius sinned. They both did. Demetrius sinned in that he violated his conscience. He essentially, in, inside of him, he returned to idolatry because that's what his conscience was telling him. And if you don't think violating your conscience is a sin, listen to what Paul says in Romans 14, 23. If you have doubts about whether or not you should eat something, you are sinning if you go ahead and do it. For you are not following your convictions. If you do anything you believe is not right, you are sinning. 
Do not violate your conscience. And do not teach another believer to violate their conscience. Because when you do, the Bible says you're sinning against them and you're sinning against Christ. You see, Antonius sinned because he was the cause of another believer violating their conscience. That's what Paul said in verse 12. Sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sinned against Christ, Antonius. You sinned against God himself. So that is a big deal. Listen, I'm assuming if you're here in a Bible study this morning, most of you here are fairly mature Christians, and you can have a lot of good head knowledge, and your conscience can be all in line, but you are constantly going to run across Christians who have a weak conscience. They may not think they should do certain things. And you know there's nothing wrong with that, man. There's nothing wrong with that. But their conscience tells them it is wrong, does this, this, this passage clearly tells us, listen, do not violate their conscience. Do not teach that person to do... that. God will take care of that. The Holy Spirit will deal with them. You don't, try to, you don't try to project your knowledge and your freedom on that person. You let them obey their conscience because that's what the Holy Spirit at this point in their life is using to, to guide them. The principle here, and listen to me closely, is that the conscience of a weaker Christian is more important than our individual freedom. The conscience of a weaker Christian is more important than our individual freedom. When we have to decide on something that is a gray area, we must take into account how other Christians will be affected. Everybody with me? Okay? Doing something permitted should never hinder the spiritual health of another. Look what Paul finishes up, the last verse of the chapter, and says this, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will become a vegetarian. Or if meat, that's what he, in, the, in, the, in the Greek. If meat makes my brother stumble, I'll become a vegetarian. Is there anything wrong with eating meat? No, Paul knows there's absolutely nothing wrong with it, but he says if that makes my brother stumble, if that violates her conscience, I will never eat meat again. I mean, the principle is as clear as it can be. It's not about being right. It's about the conscience of your brother. Now, with a little bit of time we got left, I want to point out something that I think is critically important, yet it's something that I think is very easy to miss. And I want everybody to listen up, okay? Because if you don't get anything outside of this, I want you to get this. So last week, I asked a question. Should Christians attend a gay marriage ceremony? Okay. Now, when I ask that question, some of you have probably already got an answer in your head. Yeah, you should, or no, you shouldn't, or whatever. So this week, I was out of town, so I thought, well, I'll do a little bit of thinking on this. I'll meditate on this a little bit, study up on it. I'll read what other people say. Because last week, I had a couple people come up and, and talk to me about that. In fact, I heard one pastor say this. He said, I would have never thought in my lifetime, I would ever be asked that question. And he said, in the past year, I've been already been asked it five times. So it's a, it's a different lifetime. It's a different culture. It's a different age. Again, questions are going to come up, not necessarily uh, covered in the, in the Bible. So I did a little research, and I did a little thinking on it. So I, I found a lot of different people. And this is one that I thought put a fairly good, was fairly average for the answer. This is Brian Boderson. He's a senior pastor at Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, California. And this is what he said. So he said, so what's my answer? 
Should a Christian attend a same-sex wedding? This is my present perspective on it, and for me it comes down to drawing a distinction between the two groups Paul mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5. Now, let me, let's go back real quickly to 1 Corinthians 5 so we know what he's talking about. You remember when we went to 1 Corinthians 5 that we covered church discipline and we covered sexual immorality and some of these things. Let's read that verse in 9 through 13. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. But Paul says, I didn't at all mean the sexually immoral people of the world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters since you'd have to go out of the world. In other words, you can't live your life without associating with sexually immoral people of the world. They're out there every day. Paul said, what I meant was not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality. Paul says, when I told you not to associate with sexually immoral people, I didn't mean them out there. I meant people in the church that say they're brothers and sisters and they're sexually immoral. don't have anything to do with them. That's who Paul said. So what Brian Boderson says this, if those marrying, talking about gay marriage, claim they are believers and that God is leading them to be married, and they are inviting you to come celebrate their love with them, I believe the answer is no. You should not have any, any part in anything like that. Those are people Paul said we are to separate from. Everybody see what he's saying? If they say they're Christians, stay away from them. Okay? But what if they're just rank-and-file unbelievers? They, they don't say, they got nothing to do with Christ, nothing to do with Christianity. They don't say they're believers this is what he says. But if, on the other hand, the person is a rank-and-file unbeliever, perhaps a relative, an old friend, a work colleague, or whatever the case might be, and they invite you, this is where I would say pray about it and be open to the Lord, having you there as part of the bigger picture work that he's doing in the lives of those who presently are lost but could one day be found. And then he goes on to quote 1 Timothy 1.15 where Paul says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So what he's saying is this. It, you know, could you go as, do you want them to know that you love them and you want to be there to help them and minister to them if the time comes down the road where they're open to receiving Christ? Then he says, possibly, <laughs> right? You probably want to pray about that and consider that, okay? So that was pretty average for some of the things that I heard. A couple others Another reason for not going that people give a lot is this. One person said, wedding guests do not spectate. In other words, when you go to a wedding, you're not there just to watch. You're there to bear witness and validate the couple's marriage and support their commitment. So that person said, I could not attend because if I attend a wedding, I'm validating sinful behavior. Another person said the same thing. By attending a same-sex wedding, I tacitly endorse sin. I cannot in good conscience go. Those are basically the three things you hear. Every time you ask the question, should I attend a gay marriage, you hear three things. If, they're, if they say they're Christians, don't go. Because the Bible clearly tells us, not a gray area, don't support that. Stay away from those type of people. The second one said, okay, but if they're just unbelievers, then you could probably go. Okay, you're not... You're not by the way, is that even a real marriage? No, it's not even a real marriage. Right? Just like an idol is nothing, that marriage is really nothing. So somebody, somebody might say, well, you can go. The other person said, look, if you're, you would be validating the marriage not go. Now, here's what I want to point out to you all this morning. Okay? In all the articles I read, 
And all the reasons that were laid out, not a single one mentioned how it would affect another Christian. Not a single person in all the things I read mentioned, if I go, how would it affect a brother or sister in Christ? Not a single one. And I can almost guarantee you in your thinking, as you've thought through it, you hadn't thought of that either. You've thought about how does it affect me? Would I be endorsing sin? You've thought about how would it affect my, my niece or my son-in-law or my daughter or whoever the case may be. How would it affect them? But hardly any of us think how would it affect another Christian? But folks, that's, Paul says that's the exact question you should be asking. See, Paul says, if food makes my brother stumble, if going to a gay marriage makes my brother stumble, I will not go. Everybody with me? See, this whole principle here about the principle of love is not about a principle of love for unbelievers. It's the principle of love for other Christians. How would it affect other Christians? You see, Paul could have said, man, go on and eat meat in the temple. Show them that you love them. Show Christ with them. Share Christ while you're sitting at the table. Maybe they'll get saved. Paul says, no. No, see, to him, the conscience of a brother or sister in Christ is more important than whether or not that person might actually get saved. Listen, I want you to hear me carefully. We must love unbelievers with a fierce, passionate kind of love. Should we not? We want them to come to Christ. But would you all agree that we have to love God more? We, we don't, should we, if I ask this question, should I commit a sin so that somebody might possibly get saved? Yes or no? No, because God comes first. He's our priority, right? Well, in the same way, Paul is pretty clear. The part of loving God, that part of loving God more than unbelievers includes loving His children more than unbelievers. Let me say it again. And by the way, if you don't believe that, go back and read that verse. Paul says you sin against your brother, you sin against who? God. It's that important, the conscience, what other brothers and sisters think about it. So I will tell you right now, after I went through this last this week and I asked that question, if I went to a gay marriage, how would it affect my weaker brothers? Well, see, when I, I look at a weaker brother, I can see them thinking, man, if he goes to that, that would offend their conscience. Therefore, I will not go because of that reason, because that, is laid, that principle is laid out very clearly in Scripture. That's the question we, we should be doing. Put the welfare of your brothers and sisters first. What do they think about it? Ask that question first. Now, we're not done with this. Paul is, is going to continue on and in chapter 9 and into chapter 10, talking about... He's going to be moving on some other things, but he's going to come back to this subject uh, a little bit more. So we've got a lot to learn about some of these principles and guidelines as we move ahead into Corinthians. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for 1 Corinthians.